Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy it. Today, my guest is someone whose work I deeply value, Bruce Tift. Bruce Tift has been in private practice as a psychotherapist in Boulder, Colorado since 1979 and has taught at Naropa University for 25 years and has given presentations in the United States, Mexico, and Japan. A practitioner of Vajrayana Buddhism for more than 35 years, he had the good fortune to be a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. With Sounds True, Bruce has written a new book called Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation, where he examines how psychotherapy's developmental approach of understanding the way our childhood experiences shape our adult selves, both challenges and supports the fruitional approach of Buddhism, which tells us that the freedom we seek is always available. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Bruce and I spoke about how the approaches of both Western psychotherapy and Buddhism contain blind spots and how we might be able to address those blind spots. We talked about neurosis and neurotic behavior and how, in Bruce's experience, neurosis always requires disembodiment. We talked about what Bruce calls unconditional practices, including the practice of unconditional kindness. And finally, we talked about the difference between problems and disturbances and how Bruce experiences disturbance on a regular basis and how this is not a problem. Here's my conversation with Bruce Tift. Welcome, Bruce. It's always great to be with you and to have the chance to be with you in person here in the Sounds True studio. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoy our discussions. Yeah. My goal for our conversation today is to bring forward, to highlight some of the themes in your new book, Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation. And I want to do this because I think there are some ideas in the book that are really intriguing. So I want to see if we can bring those forward for Great. our listeners. Good. You begin the book by describing two different ways of 
viewing, if you will, our human experience. And you call them the developmental view. And you contrast this view, the developmental view, to the fruitional view. So to begin with, can you describe what these two different perspectives are? Well, I think uh, very basically a developmental view is an overtime view. It's acknowledging that as humans, we have this amazing capacity to remember the past, to think about the future, to locate ourselves in what feels like a present. And I think that uh, gives us um, a lot of choices, a lot of um, potential that, let's say, probably most animals who seem to be living more just in the present uh, don't have. In the book, um, talking about that over time view, especially as it relates to uh, psychotherapy and Western therapy is complex and can't be reduced to a simplistic formula, but I think it's fair to say that at least the majority of uh, therapists practicing in a traditional Western way work with the idea that experiences that we had as very young children tend to shape how we are engaging with our life now as adults. And so there's a lot of interest, a lot of very good work has been done to speculate, have theories about, research how different types of experience when young seem to persist in the form of survival strategies or ways of organizing our experience. And some of these, of course, are very valuable and we want to continue to have access to, but therapy tends to focus on the ways in which our experience when young uh, is persisting now as adults in ways that are no longer accurate, several decades out of date, are Mm -hmm. not actually serving us or others. So in Western therapy, there's a lot of interest in trying to understand, to investigate what was it like for us as young children. And in Western therapy, it's especially focused, there's a focus on our relationship with our parents. That's the main focus. But siblings, gender, life experiences, trauma, uh, it's very complex. I find that that's so pervasive that it's, uh, from what I can tell, I, I just hear from clients I work with, but from what I can tell, it's um, almost a given in a lot of types of Western therapy that uh, there are unresolved issues from our past that some people call wounds or whatever, and that 
there's an idea that these unresolved patterns of behavior have to be resolved in order to be present. And so a lot of times there's uh, work in what's called a transferential relationship where the therapist takes on the attitude of not disclosing much about themselves, not offering many theories, keeping things very open, to invite uh, the person they're working with to project these unresolved issues from their past as if the therapist were the parent. Once these deep unconscious projections are out in the open, then they can be worked with. So that's a transferential model of working. That's not how I work, but it's a very common way of working in therapy. What I call a fruitional view comes from my Buddhist training and practice, and it refers to a type of organization in Buddhism called ground path fruition. Ground is where we find ourselves to be, our current reality. Fruition could be understood as where we would like to be, and path is how we get from here to there. My training is in Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, and in that tradition, the ground and the fruition are seen as essentially the same but with the difference that in our ground experience, we're taking what we experience unconsciously as if it's the whole story, as if it's just what's true. A fruitional experience is basically the same experience, but in the environment of, the context of awareness, so that the same feelings, thoughts, sensations, perceptions are arising perhaps, but there is a conscious participation in an open awareness that prevents us actually experientially from taking any of this display as if it's the whole story, taking it too seriously. And then the path from that point of view is not about how to get somewhere else because it's the same immediate experience. It's more about a variety of practices, views, studies, techniques that invite more and more conscious participation in open awareness, which in this tradition is said to always be present already. It's The view is that this experience of open nature is already what is most fundamental, most basic, most intimate in all of our experiencing. But for a lot of reasons, which I don't completely understand, we pretend to not be aware of what is actually present. So a fruitional point of view in this uh, context is uh, one in which we focus on uh, coming into immediacy, embodiment, presence, acceptance, surrender to whatever is arising in our immediate experience with no claim that we have to clear anything up from our history 
as a requirement for being fully present in our life, that we can be present in anything that arises without exception and with kindness. And anybody can do that as a practice, but of course, along a continuum, the more frequently we have moments of awareness, the more that view makes sense. Now, in your work as a therapist, you work both with a developmental approach and a fruitional approach. Mm -hmm. However, I want to clarify one thing. When you were describing the developmental approach, you said that you didn't work with the transference style mm -hmm. that many therapists do. So why not? Well, I could probably examine my personal history to understand why I don't <laughs> haven't ever been attracted to that, and that would be accurate. But I would say the more the more useful understanding is that uh, I prefer to work with people as if they are adults who are responsible for learning how to relate to their own experience, whatever it is, including what's conscious or unconscious, resolved or not resolved, with a almost a generic approach of being present and non-interpretive, embodied and unconditionally kind to whatever we find there. And my bias is that as long as we are looking to the other person, whether it's the therapist, our partners, whoever, or a spiritual teacher, as if my capacity to be fully present and aware is somehow in the future or it's outside of myself, I think that is um, actually can be counterproductive to a fruitional view, which is my basic sort of ground to work from. So in a lot of my work, I'm relating to those I work with as if they are actually already awake and pretending not to be. And so I find that it is more congruent with that, that view to relate to people as if they are fully responsible for how they relate to their own experience and not imply that there's something that has to be healed or resolved before that's possible. So even though the book is set up as a meeting, if you will, between the developmental approach, or we could say psychotherapy, mm. and the fruitional approach, mm. we could say Buddhism, it sounds that you actually are saying that you have a preference or a bias towards the fruitional yes. approach, and yet you incorporate the developmental approach. But tell me a little bit about that, this bias. I mean, you called the book already mm. free, so you gave right. it a fruitional title. Right. Well, let's say we're in a relationship. I'm married. My wife and I have been together 36 years, 30, we've been together almost 40 years. Um, I would say that my bias is to grounding my, my experience in the reality that I love her and 
as you and I have talked about in the past, my experience is that I get disturbed in my relationship pretty much every day. And so I have found it very helpful to work with that disturbance so that I am not feeling so uh you know upset so i'm not so i can be more kind to my partner you know things so that things work better so on a relative level i find it very helpful to work on the display of our experience but my preference is to uh hold as the basic ground what is most true the fact that i love this person and i feel loved by her or why in the world would i still be in a relationship so in a similar way I prefer to relate to the people I work with as if I feel that they are already wakeful in their basic nature and that there's always work to do on the relative level. That's never going to end. You know, you can't solve one's life. Life isn't solvable. It's not a problem to fix. It's a process we can participate in. And things are always improving they're always falling apart they're you know and so my particular bias is that it's very helpful to work on the relative developmental level to sort of clean up our act to have reduce our unnecessary suffering and not cause unnecessary harm to others but i find that the experience of open awareness is what is most reliable in my life and that is addressed in the fruitional view and it's basically not addressed at all really in western therapy now a couple of times you've used this interesting word in our conversation you've talked about the display <laughs> yes. our experience life mm. as a display mm. and you know, I notice every time you use that word display, I think a little bit, are you not taking life as seriously as I am? Or what's going on with this word? It's a display. Well, I'm not taking life as seriously as I used to. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, in the book, I use an example that makes sense to me. If we go to the movies, we're actually paying to get captured by that display. And we all know it's a display, but our unconscious agreement and hope is that it'll be so fascinating that we get a little break from our life for a couple of hours and get entertained. But it requires that we get captured by that display as if it's reality. But in getting captured, we have almost no choice. If it's a happy movie, we laugh. If it's mm -hmm. a sad movie, we cry. If we took exactly the same movie and showed it out in a broad field, middle of the day, it's unlikely we're going to get captured by that display. We're going to know it's a display because, you know, everything that's around it is so much more real and vivid to us. That open expanse within which the display is happening makes it clear that it is a display. Whereas when we have a more uh, sort of tunnel vision approach to our experience, meaning without an environment of awareness, we take that display as if it's reality. So I happen to use display as an invitation 
for somebody to just consider that what we tend to take as reality may not be so in the way that we assume it to be. Okay. And you've shared now that you have a bias towards the fruitional yes. approach, and yet you value a developmental perspective as mm -hmm. well. And with mm -hmm. your clients, you alternate, and this is what you say in the book, between these two approaches. And, mm -hmm. and here's the key thing, without any hope of resolution, <laughs> yes. you alternate between these two approaches. Yes. So you don't have some kind of system or grand unified theory that puts it all together. You just alternate between these two different ways of working with experience? Yes. To be a little abstract, um, the complementarity principle in quantum physics asserts that reality is so complex and fundamentally ungraspable that the most complete descriptions of reality have to tolerate holding contradictory modes of investigation and descriptions, that that's actually going to be the most complete, never total, but the most complete uh, approximation of the non-divided nature of what, what we call reality. If we said, well, there's night and there's day, we wouldn't, uh, hopefully we're not trying to integrate those into being the same thing. We, we accept that there's winter, there's summer, there's up and down, there's death, there's birth. Our, the actual reality of our human experience is that the larger non-divided, maybe we could say whole, but whatever it is, is made up of apparent contradictions. And so if somebody is trying to integrate two opposing views, I think that reflects an idea, maybe not examined, that there's some problem with contradiction. And I don't think there is. I think contradiction is the display of relative experience. Another more abstract way of saying that is that in my training, Vajrayana Buddhism, which I, one of the things I have always appreciated is the idea that we start, most of us, of course, start with a complete identification with our thoughts, feelings, everything. And then if we are fortunate in our spiritual path work, we have more and more moments of open awareness, basic nature, whatever people call that. But unlike some traditions, the point isn't to escape from the limitations of our relative experience and somehow go into a state of open, formless bliss. My understanding is that the point is that as we become confident in the fundamentally open, non-graspable nature of our experiencing, that then the point is to return and participate even more deeply in the relative, precisely because we're not taking it so seriously. So my current understanding is that what is most accurate and I think helpful is to practice at least holding what we call relative and absolute, 
this display that always we take seriously and a more open awareness that has no bias actually to hold both of those ways of experiencing simultaneously with no fantasy of resolution because that's really going to be taking sides which is going to maintain dualistic experience actually on a subtle level i think beyond that view we actually explore the possibility that awareness is inseparable from our relative experience can't actually be divided in the ways i'm talking about it and even that there's a simultaneity of open and form openness and form formless and form that in which both of them uh, are sort of saturated with the other and uh, no description actually is going to capture that we can't take a position about it so that's a view but um, i find that it makes the most sense to me to understand and work in ways that invite that direct experience that you called uh, that of our life, our self being unresolvable. I think the feeling, the actual experience of nothing being resolvable is a closer approximation to open mind than a theory that seems to explain whatever we're interested in. Mm -hmm. What is so interesting to me, Bruce, is so many different sounds true authors will give let's say for a moment the fruitional view mm -hmm. and they don't talk at all about the value of looking at things as a progression in time they're only talking about the timeless mm -hmm. and so it seems like these different teachers and then we'll publish another person who's <laughs> very much looking at, you know, we have mm. to go back and heal these traumas from our mm. past or whatever. And so it's very rare to actually find someone who says both of these things are important and they can be seemingly contradictory and that's not a problem. Right. That's pretty rare, actually. I think it's not a culturally familiar view and it's one of the one of the things that I'm, you know, really appreciative of of my teacher Trungpa Rinpoche that he uh, had apparently no problem with uh, contradictory things that he would say or teachings he would give. It was very difficult to ever feel like there was any certainty to stand on when you were listening to him. <laughs> now, one of the things that I find so valuable about this perspective that you're offering is that it helps reveal blind spots, mm -hmm. if you will, in either one of these approaches. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the main blind spots are in the psychotherapeutic or developmental view and what the main blind spots are in the fruitional view. I think that in the Western psychotherapy uh, view, the developmental view, because there's so much uh, interest in historic origins of current ways we organize our experience, that it's very easy to somewhat unconsciously take the attitude 
that there actually is a problem in the past that needs to be healed. There, need, there are wounds that need to be healed before somebody can be fully present. And I think, again, unconsciously, it's very easy then to take on a project of self-improvement where we don't realize that we're postponing being recognizing, I would say, that we always are fully present, we're always fully intimate with life and with each other. Uh, we're always fully engaged. There's no other possibility. But a lot of us, I think, have this unexamined idea that when I clear these things up in the future, then I'll show up, then I'll accept myself, then I'll bring my vulnerability to my partner, whatever our thing is. And so one of the problems with the overtime approach in our culture, especially, is that we postpone acceptance until there's a certain type of improvement. And I think that's, uh, it's uh, invited by that view, that, that blind spot. In the fruitional point of view, it's sort of the flip side where there's much more focus on acceptance and improvement is seen as a story or a fundamental aggression toward reality. And so I've worked with many clients who are practitioners who, in my opinion, are somewhat unconsciously using immediacy as an avoidance of dealing with their, our actual human messy uh, life I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years have uh, come into therapy, and they usually don't stay long, given my style, but uh, basically reporting that they never have had a long-time job. They, uh, they're there because their partner tells them you know, that they're ready to leave them because they yell at them or they're, you know, drinking too much. I mean, uh, you're familiar, of course, with the term spiritual bypassing, and that's a way of saying it, that people can use immediacy because it's true that in the present moment, it's almost impossible to find any evidence of a problem. We can find disturbance and stuff, but no evidence of a problem. Problem basically means a refusal to, to be present. Um, and it's very pervasive in the spiritual path community that people will uh, be drawn to a path of nonviolence, let's say in Buddhism, when they have issues of anger. You know, oh great, I'll go and be calm and generous and kind mm -hmm. and everything like that. And they use these practices uh, often as a way of not having a relationship with their own rage, their sadistic impulses, their their basic aggressive energy, which all humans have. So I think the blind spot in the fruitional view is that by focusing only on immediacy, we can ignore the patterns in our experience, which are only revealed over time. Hmm. But in therapy, especially, uh, basically we're looking for out-of-date uh, patterns of experiencing. Okay, I want to talk about neurosis. And there's a couple of interesting 
quotes that I've pulled from the book, Already Free. But to begin with, how do you define neurosis? I usually don't, you know, but I did in the book, I guess. Um, I guess I would say that um, neurosis I see as a practice that has to be maintained with a lot of intelligence and creativity and discipline even, in which we are constantly looking for ways in which to ignore the truth of our experience and focus on ritualized uh, dramas, apparent problems, distractions, as a way to pretend that we don't really have to feel and work with what we don't want to experience. And that usually these patterns of ignoring and distraction could be understood as having their origin in young childhood. I think that's very accurate. But my view is not so much about how did they get formed? I'm always curious, but how, not so much how did they get formed as young children, but the real question for me is, how is it that we are maintaining these patterns of avoidance in the present moment when there's almost never any evidence that they are actually necessary and justified? So in my work, I have the view that most of us actually actively are looking for evidence all the time that will justify our investment in these patterns of avoidance. So I'm wondering if you could give me a concrete example that would make it just a common neurotic pattern that's an avoidance pattern. Um, I don't like to pay bills. I get anxious because I'm not independently wealthy. And that's not why I get anxious, but <laughs> that's my fantasy <laughs> that I wouldn't be anymore. But anyway, I get anxious about paying bills and I can... Are you giving us a personal example here? Uh, yes. Oh, this is a personal example. Yes, oh, a good. personal example. Good. I, figured that's, I could talk about you, but <laughs> it's more kind to talk about myself. Uh, so I find that I have a tendency to uh, put sort of the bills off to the side somewhere, either literally in a little pile or uh, just out of my mind. And uh, I don't often uh, deal with the bill paying proactively, but a lot of times I'll suddenly realize, oh no, did I pay that bill? And I'll go look for it in the pile and say, oh, damn, I forgot it, or, or oh good, I have got another couple of days. And so I generate a drama about paying bills. Mm -hmm. um, it obviously doesn't prevent me from feeling disturbed, but it, uh, like a lot of procrastination strategies, it allows us to unconsciously pretend that my anxiety is about this issue of let's say a pain bills rather than recognizing I have anxiety every day of my life. And if I had a very organized system and paid my bills ahead of time, as I was able to, I'd have to feel that anxiety every day. But if I can sort of condense it into a little short drama, then I can sort of unconsciously 
ignore that reality of my, uh, that part of my life. Okay, so then this brings me to one of the quotes from the book. Neurosis is always a substitute for experiential intensity. And I wonder if you can unpack that for us. Yeah, so that's just a paraphrase of a quote by Carl Jung, which I like, which is that neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. That was his quote. And I like that because it points to neurosis as the activity of intelligence, whereas I'm not a Freudian, but I think that some of that view was that it was sort of this blind conflict between our libidinal sort of primitive sexual energy and our superego type of energies. And a lot of people see neurosis as something that is sort of happens to them or they inherited from their history. I prefer to think of neurosis as, an, as a practice that has to be maintained continually. And I think that our basic uh, agenda in our avoidance strategies is to stay out of uh, too much aliveness, too much openness, which can include both suffering, as Jung said, but also I think we organize our lives around avoiding too much sexual intensity, power, joy, just open appreciation, uncertainty, things like that. Because it's actually, I think, very, very intense to be fully present in our life. Now, well, let's talk about this for a moment, because most people say what they want is... To be you open. Know, well, to have <laughs> intense sexual mm. experience and to feel incredibly alive and mm. powerful and mm. joyful. And, and now you're saying that that's actually what we're avoiding through our neurosis. Yes, and it doesn't mean that some aspect of us, to use that language, doesn't want that. It just means that there's another aspect of us that avoids that. Why would we avoid it? Well, I think as biological beings, also given our personal history, most of us actually are going to put survival as a higher priority than quality of life. And most of us unconsciously are invested in our young survival strategies as if those are what's going to keep us alive and functional, protect us. And from a Buddhist point of view, even that that is my identity. I'm somebody who's always looking for the love that he will never get, something like that, that sort of drama. So I think it's true that we want aliveness and I think it's true that we want safety and security. But in a very primitive, unconscious way, I think most of us are probably going to go for safety and security if the aliveness gets to be too much. Anyway, I can have both. Well, Door number three. Yes, you already do have both. <laughs> so it's more consciously participating in that unresolvable simultaneity of contradictory energies. But as the more that we're trying to choose sides or in uh, therapy jargon, the more black and white organization there is from childhood, the more we actually act as if it's one or the other. So if we work from that reality, I think that it's helpful to give ourselves permission at first to alternate 
back and forth rather than our unexamined fantasy that it's one or the other. So that might mean that I'm going to allow myself to have moments of passion or of open mind or of rage or feeling very confident, whatever it is, and that I don't have to stay there. The, I think it's just as important to be open to being closed as it is to be open to being open. But a lot of sort of therapy, spiritual path people, I think, have a prejudice that it's good to be open and it's bad to be closed. And so they keep on trying to be open all the time. But that just guarantees that their need to be closed, meaning protected, safe, secure, will get expressed unconsciously and indirectly. But if we want to practice unconditional openness, if it's unconditional, we have to be just as open to being closed as we are open to being open. And then I think it's more like breathing in and breathing out. It's appropriate, skillful, uh, accurate to alternate between these two energies, knowing that they will never be resolved. Sometimes I'm going to want to be close. Sometimes I'm not going to want to be close. Sometimes I'm open to ecstatic experiences. Sometimes I just want to watch TV, you know. Maybe none of that's a problem. Okay, we have another quote from the book okay. about neurosis that I found quite important, actually. Neurosis requires disembodiment. If it makes sense that neurosis is fundamentally an avoidant strategy where we're trying to get out of experiential intensity, it's very difficult, I believe, to ignore the truth of our experience if we're aware of what our embodied experience is. If my heart's beating fast and my stomach's tight, uh, it's sort of hard to pretend that I'm calm and together. And so I think that life is always disturbing us. It's not really, but that's how we think of it. Life is always affecting us in ways that don't fit our fantasies or preferences. We call it disturbance. And I think that the level that is hardest to ignore uh, our disturbance on is the embodied sensation physical level. If I'm disturbed in my body, it's sort of hard to pretend again that I've got, you know, I'm an evolved person who's never affected by anything. So I think one of the fundamental requirements of neurotic organization is a dissociation from our immediate embodied vulnerabilities. And so from that point of view, the antidotal practice, if we want to dissolve neurotic organization, I think really, at least, I don't know if it's a requirement or not, but it certainly is very important, very central to train ourselves to bring our attention back into our immediate sensation level embodied vulnerabilities so we can discover where's the problem. Do I actually have to bail out of my body? Do I have to dissociate? Do I have to avoid the truth of my experience? As children, we do. 
There's no way in the world that we can tolerate the inner and outer uh, overwhelming intensities of being a little fragile little being in the world. But by the time we're adults, a lot of us actually have the capacity to stay embodied through very, very intense experience. But until we discipline ourselves to go into what we don't want to feel, we're probably going to take our young assumptions for granted as if they're still true. So it seems to me that for somebody to successfully ignore the truth of their experience, it's really almost necessary to disembody, to get out of our immediate embodied vulnerabilities. And to dissolve neurotic organization, I see that as a very central part of that work, is to re-embody. But again, nobody wants to feel unsafe. Or we don't want to feel our rage and our panic and our grief and our fear. So this is all counter instinctual work. It's not, you know, a lot of Western therapy, I think, mistakes the practical need to feel safe to do certain types of work, especially trauma work. I think there's an unconscious extension of that and thinking that the point is that we're supposed to feel safe in relationships. We're supposed to feel safe in our life. Nobody's feels safe in their life. How could anybody? Life isn't safe. Life isn't organized around our survival or our preferences. So I think it's very important to learn to discriminate between feeling unsafe, for example, and whether we actually are unsafe. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to help a listener at this point bring this into their own life. So if someone's listening and they're thinking, I wonder in what way am I neurotic? In what way am I neurotic? They could ask anybody that knows them and probably get a pretty good answer. Good but idea. what would be your suggestion, first of all, how they could choose to just work through this here with us to pick one of their, <laughs> out of a handful? How would they right. find, oh yeah, that's how I know. I'm definitely neurotic in that respect. Well, I think your question is a good one to start with, which is, how am I neurotic instead of am I neurotic? Yeah, we're going to presume. We're, we're going to presume, presume. Okay. all of our experiencing is an inseparable entanglement of sanity and neurosis. So how am I sane? How am I neurotic is the more useful question. There's a lot of ways to approach that. One, let's say, because in relationship is very important to many of us, let's say that any experience that I have of complaint about my partner is almost certainly evidence of neurotic organization. Well, everyone's going to have something on that front. Every so single person. Safe one. So that's okay. a safe one. So everyone's going to have a complaint yes. about their partner. I'm going to bet my career on it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so, once they identify that, then what, so what's the next step? Then they could consider the view that their actual complaint, more precisely, is probably that their partner is triggering feelings in them that they don't want to feel. So if I'm irritated with my partner, that probably means I'm irritated at having to feel some vulnerability that I've had all my life that my partner is triggering but not causing. Because I had this issue before I ever met them, 
if we split up, I'll still have this issue. They're not the cause. But codependent dynamics involve this sort of mutual agreement that we'll each blame each other. Nobody will have effective boundaries. So nobody has to deal with their own vulnerabilities because the finger's always going over to one's partner. So anytime we have a complaint, we could start by asking, oh, what is it that I'm having to feel right this moment that I don't want to feel? And then investigate that. My bias is to investigate it as raw sensation level experience, no interpretation at all, certainly no claim that it's about my partner because it's not really. And then see, first of all, well, is it killing me to feel my tight stomach, my heart hurts, my throat's constricted, whatever. Is it damaging me? Is there any evidence about my worth as a person? I've never found it. We're not going to find shame or guilt or abandonment as sensations. They're not. They're already dissociative interpretations of our immediate vulnerability, in my view. So then our practice is to continually use our sense of complaint, let's say, as a signal to return to our immediate embodied vulnerability and start to have a conscious, embodied, kind relationship with that aspect of our own experience, because it's us. It's not something that's happening to us. And at some point we get the clarity, doesn't it just make sense for me to be kind to my own difficult experience? Nobody else on the planet's lining up to be kind to my vulnerabilities. Maybe yeah, it's up to me. And so basically we can use any repetitive, dissociative experience, whether it's self-aggression is another very common thing that's, I would say, is always a dissociative escape from some immediate embodied vulnerability that's happening. Okay, so let's slow down on that one. Okay. So that means that any time that I'm feeling terrible about myself, oh my God, I can't believe I said that, mm -hmm. or I could have handled that better, or et cetera, that I'm leaving my body in some I, way. I would say almost certainly. And substituting what's probably an historically learned explanation for my difficult feelings. And most kids have to learn to blame themselves rather than blame their parents. You know, that's not very safe when you're young. So first of all, like your language was when I'm feeling like I've done something wrong, but that's not a feeling. That's already an interpretation. And so a lot of us unconsciously actually uh, relate to our story about our disturbance as if it's our feelings, but they're actually stories. They're, they're dissociative explanations for why I'm feeling anxious or vulnerable or raw or exposed or something very hard. It's hard to stay embodied with that, that ex raw exposure sort of feeling. But I would say if somebody investigates with that sort of question, what am I feeling right this second that I don't want to feel, stay embodied with no interpretations, they're never going to find any evidence of my being unworthy or somehow worthy of shame or anything like that. It's just not there. There's just raw vulnerability. Now, you speak at one point in the book about these unconditional practices mm. that we can bring 
into our life. You could call them fruitional yes. practices. Mm -hmm. And one of them is this practice of unconditional kindness. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to say more about that, because I think it's something that's really challenging for a lot of people. Yeah, our culture isn't exactly uh, mature, and uh, we have a lot of aggression in our culture, and a lot of it gets, you know, turned against ourselves and others. Sometimes if I'm working with a client and they happen to be a parent, I'll invite them to remember what it was like when they had their little infant maybe six months old or something, and that infant was inconsolable. They were in pain, they were upset, and the parent tries everything they can and nothing works. And when I ask a parent, well, what do you do then? What did you do? I have had a couple of parents say, well, throw them in the room until they feel better. But 99% of the parents say, well, I'll just keep holding my little baby, you know? I'm not going to abandon my baby, but mm. it's tearing my heart apart to not be able to solve my baby's pain. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that is analogous to how we might hold our own uh, deep grief and rage and fear and panic and everything. We can actually hold exactly what is most disturbing to us in a sense of love, as if we're actually holding that, you know, it's not a, it's not an intellectual practice, it's a heart practice. And I find that for many of us in our culture, that the sort of more heart-based practice of unconditional kindness, which means sort of everything without exception, is actually much more powerful than just clarity practices. Mm -hmm. We have to have enough clarity to know what we're practicing with, but a lot of us, I think, take refuge in clarity as a way to staying out of the vulnerability of opening our heart to feelings that are really, really disturbing, but are not resolvable, actually. I'm curious to know in your own life how the practice of unconditional kindness has unfolded for you. Well, I think there was some shift in my 40s and then some another types of shift in my 50s. So... I used to be incredibly sarcastic and, you know, uh, I know you won't believe this about me, but very aggressive and everything. Uh, but I would say maybe in the last 15 to 20 years, I don't experience self-aggression at all. Uh -huh. And Not at all. It doesn't come up all. at all. It doesn't come up at all. And I think that is has come out of some variety of factors, but I think an intention to practice kindness at some point in my life was very central to that, that I really committed to returning to my immediate experience, whatever it was, and often I really, really did not want to feel that. And I just found in my direct evidence that my state of mind was so much more positive or satisfying or workable when I stopped uh, being aggressive to whatever was true. And in fact, actually even practiced being kind. I think being a parent, which I am, was very helpful with that in the same ways I was just talking about. Certainly being married has been very helpful for me. Being a therapist has been very helpful for me that way. And my Buddhist practice has been really helpful that way. But um, 
it's I would say it's not even an issue. It, it doesn't come up anymore about self-aggression. So I don't have a current practice of being a, a kind because that's sort of an antidotal practice. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool, Bruce. Pretty, yeah, sounds good. You don't does. know if it's true or not. <laughs> I trust you. I trust you. You're a truthful guy. Uh, okay. Now, there, there are two other unconditional practices that you write about in the book unconditional immediacy and unconditional embodiment. And I wonder if you can give us the sort of pith instruction, if you will, on, <laughs> on both of those. Well, we've touched on both of those. I think the fruitional view has a lot to do with immediacy. And so the more we return to what is most true in this present moment, whatever a moment is, but in this present moment, understanding we're only living in the present moment. This is the only moment in which we can find out what is most true, and there's always some unfolding happening on a relative level. But in my experience, what we find to be most true in the present moment as we go deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more and more immediate in our experiencing is that we find less and less and less evidence of any problem any division, any conflict, anything missing. And as I've, as you and I have talked about, that's not the whole story because as humans, there's also the overtime recognition, the patterns that will continue to manifest. But when we have a ground of immediacy, then we can work with these patterns without a sense that they are a problem. We actually increasingly just work with these patterns as practical issues to help improve the quality of our life and our capacity to be a benefit to other people, but not because there's something wrong with me that I have to heal before I'm okay. Embodiment we were just talking about, and that again is an unconditional commitment to return, because most of us are always dissociating, to return to immediate embodied experience, not even just when there's a problem, but just as an ongoing practice, almost like being aware of our breathing. It's not because there's a problem, it's just that's sort of more true than my stories about what's happening. I remember uh, reading at some point about a, a Western student uh, doing a retreat in Thailand, and the, the teacher there gave the instructions, in the next 10 days, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. So I thought that was a great instruction for a retreat. Mm. Mm. And we could actually commit to that practice, not as an accomplishment, but as a practice for the rest of our life. Why should we ever intentionally do anything that takes us out of our immediate experience if that's the only moment we're living in? It just seems to make sense to me. So all of these practices of immediate embodiment, immediacy, uh, unconditional kindness, um, to me, are sort of resonant with the open, ungraspable, unconditional, non-biased nature of open awareness, which 
from a Vajrayana point of view, is already our basic nature. And so if we can take on practices that are most resonant with our basic nature, my hope is that it actually will, through a process of resonance, start to invite more and more conscious participation in this fundamental nature. Uh, I sometimes just use the, the analogy of uh, two tuning forks tuned to the same frequency. If you hit one, the other is going to start vibrating without being hit. And so if we can take on active practices that keep inviting the sense of unconditional awareness, embodiment, kindness. You know, in Buddhism, it's we talk about mind and body and relationship, those sort of three things. I think that it's an invitation. It doesn't, it's not causal, but I think it's an invitation to have more and more frequent moments of investigating that really interesting question of, well, what is aware of all this? What's the nature of awareness? Is awareness disturbed when I'm disturbed? Does awareness care if I'm dying or if I'm healthy? Does awareness care if I have abandonment issues? I'd say no. So again, we don't take refuge in that with a Vajrayana view, but we bring these two together so that all of our workings, our investigations of this crazy display of being humans is it can be worked with from this ground of uh, open joy, workability, non-bias, confidence, things like that. It just it just makes working with our human issues uh, so much more, I think, uh, practical and uh, non-problematic because we've removed our identity drama at that point from it. Okay, I want to ask a question that maybe puts a little pressure on the system, which oh, is good. you said, you know, the unconditional kindness, the practice of unconditional yes. kindness now comes naturally to you. You don't experience self-aggression. And so I'm curious to know of the beautiful teachings that you're offering in this book, Already Free, where do you find trouble spots in your own life at this point? Do you find any trouble spots? Well, I discriminate between disturbance and problems. And I would say, again, you don't know, I could be just bullshitting myself, but I would say that my report is that I don't experience problems. But I definitely experience disturbance every day of my life. Some of that disturbance is very obviously related to lifelong core vulnerabilities. But I personally don't have the agenda anymore, like I did when I was younger, that they need to be resolved or cleared up. So your distinction between disturbance and problems, just yes. help me be clear about that. I would say a problem is probably a disturbance that we're refusing to have a fully conscious embodied kind relationship with to participate in fully it's a problem because i'm trying to avoid it i'm trying to get around it make it go away so my bias a lot of people don't like this but my bias is that almost all the time at least with neurotically organized people that what they call wounds are not problems 
they are just they reflect a refusal to stay present and embodied with really difficult feelings they don't want to feel. But the fact that they're refusing to stay present and participate as deeply as possible gives the appearance of it being a problem. And then I can have the project of trying to heal it before I have to show up in my life. So one of my many biases. Uh, so uh, I would say that at the, uh, I honestly, I, I can't call to mind any experience in my memory, recent memory, whatever, of feeling there's a problem, but I certainly have disturbances all the time. I have a lot of limitations in my experience of relationship. Um, I uh, don't like to feel anxiety, and I can see myself, you know, as I said about that example earlier, uh, having an impulse to avoid certain engagements that would trigger anxiety. Um, I feel irritation come up, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. It's just, to me, it's just part of being human. But my experience, every once in a while, they get a little traction. But almost always what happens is that these very difficult feelings get triggered and almost immediately they are experienced in an environment of awareness so they don't go anywhere. They just have their life and they fade away and sometimes they're actually sort of funny. You know, it's funny to see myself getting irritated at something. Other times I sort of take it seriously for a little bit. But I don't I don't have a personal agenda to clear up my neuroses. You know, I, I don't see that it's a problem to avoid certain types of experience. Um, I think there are practical benefits of clearing those things up, but I'm not going to make my life into a therapy project. Truth is, Bruce, I could talk to you for a really long time. <laughs> and but I with you. Tammy. Instead, I'm going to ask you a final question. Okay. The book, Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation, came into existence because students and clients and friends of yours encouraged you, <laughs> cornered you. Yes. Uh, we didn't exactly flog you, but, <laughs> Not exactly. but we were in that direction. You and were actually very generous and encouraging me. And now the book exists. Yeah. It's published. And I'm curious to know if you have any hopes, if you will, for how this book might impact people. Well, my basic hope is that it might be a benefit to some of the people who read it. And my guess is that different aspects of the book may be helpful to different people. My most fundamental, I think, hope would be that something about the variety of views and examples and everything that's offered would strike somebody in a way that, again, could resonate with an actual glimpse or direct experience that I don't need to continue calling myself a problematic person. I don't need 
to keep claiming that life is a problem. Uh, maybe the fact that I have difficult experience is not evidence of something wrong that has to be fixed. And so I guess my hope would be that something in the book might spark an interest, a little view for a moment, that it actually might make sense to be kind to oneself and others, regardless of our feelings, not wait until we feel happy to be kind, and that that might reduce unnecessary suffering and might help others be more kind to themselves and to the people that are important to their life. I think probably anybody writing this type of book is probably just finding their own way of passing on teachings they've received. So I don't think there's anything radically new in the book, except for maybe how some things are presented. But I've found that sometimes a different presentation of very basic ideas strikes me in a new way that's very helpful. So I think that would be my hope, not that, oh, this is some new material as much as maybe it's a different way of presenting it that might be more accessible to some people. I've been speaking with Bruce Tift. He's the author of a new book as well as an audio teaching series called Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation. And I do have to say, I feel quite a bit more embodied, alive, a sense of immediacy, and I feel even more free, Bruce, at the end of our conversation than I did at the beginning. So right. thank you so much. Good testimonial. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.